There's a memorial at the offices of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration unveiled yesterday that includes photos of those who've died of fentanyl overdoses in this country. Among the faces is Minnesota's own Prince, who, as the caption on his photo says, will be forever 57, the age he was when he was found dead of an overdose at his Paisley Park Studios nearly seven years ago. His cousin Charles Smith submitted Prince's photo for the memorial. In one year, from 2020 to 2021, 978 Minnesotans died of opioid-involved deaths. That's an all-time high. Know that the opioid epidemic is is not affecting all groups of Minnesotans equally. A proposal presented to lawmakers this month from the Minnesota Department of Human Services takes aim at these racial disparities. Eric Grumdahl from the State Department of Human Services is on the line right now. He's the Assistant Commissioner of the Behavioral Health Housing and Deaf and Hard of Hearing Services Administration and helped put together the equity proposal. Commissioner, welcome. Thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity to put a spotlight on this issue. I know people are going to be surprised to hear this, that in 2021, Native Americans were almost nine times more likely to die from a drug overdose than whites. Why are Indigenous and Black Minnesotans so disproportionately affected by the opioid epidemic? We have seen uh, actually that those disparities are widening, not uh, shrinking. And so what that's really motivated the Walls Flanagan administration and the Department of Human Services to do is to listen to the communities and partners in those communities that understand what's needed to really turn that trajectory in uh, the direction that we need it to turn. Every opioid death, every death from substance use disorder is a preventable death. And the way in which our response needs to be calibrated, understanding that uh, these uh, impacts aren't felt equally across all communities, needs to reflect what those communities know uh, about what they need. And so I'm really proud of the fact that the proposal that uh, the governor and lieutenant governor presented to the legislature was really lifting up what we've heard from communities about the responses that they think will be most effective. Give us a window into these conversations. I know you've been meeting with leaders of different Minnesota communities. What are you hearing? Well, I think the first piece is just the way in which our entire substance use disorder uh, system is really eager to move in the direction of evidence and adopting uh, best practice wherever we're able to identify that, but also needing to really have those responses be driven by and, and grounded in the disproportionality that we see in who is suffering from uh, this this crisis and this epidemic. And so part of the proposals that uh, that the governor's advanced include uh, really making sure that our resources are being targeted to the communities that are most acutely experiencing uh, these deaths and this crisis, and that the bodies like the Opioid Epidemic Response Advisory Council that are leading our, our state's response are made up of uh, representatives of those communities as well. And so we've done a lot of listening to community partners, including our uh, tribal government partners, our urban Indian uh, organizations, and other communities of color about the kinds of responses that are most helpful. And and I think across these proposals, you see not only adoption of, of the things that we've heard, a movement toward where evidence can guide us and where we can support the organizations that are on the ground doing this work. And across the board, a move toward uh, an approach known as harm reduction, 
where we are really trying to meet people where they're at and walk with everybody on their own journey toward recovery, recognizing that we need a lot of different options to work for all the varying needs that exist in Minnesota. You talked about the faces of this epidemic. We know the faces, we've seen them, and we, we know the community is most affected, but do we know the why? The, uh, I mean, I would say that there are as many whys and as many stories as there are uh, individuals that are afflicted with substance use disorder. And when I, when I speak with families and, and hear their stories about what uh, their particular journey has been or the loved ones that they may have lost, what I really appreciate is that all of our responses have to be grounded in that understanding of meeting somebody where they are and working with them to figure out what is the path for you to come back to uh, recovery and stability, recognizing that we need options that have the flexibility in them to be able to, to respond to those needs. I'm also really proud of the way that I think we've, we've really leaned into the way in which uh, the challenges related to substance use disorder overlap with and intersect with all kinds of other challenges like housing instability. Our proposals include a recognition that uh, based on some recent research conducted by the Department of Health and the Hennepin Health uh, Research Institute, we see a vast overrepresentation of people facing housing instability among those who are dying uh, from overdose. And so these proposals also look at how do we address the social conditions and the, the needs for, for access to housing that are also part of uh, this crisis for so many Minnesotans. I also understand that the proposal you've been working on covers behavioral health services for folks in Minnesota prisons. How does that dovetail into the overall issue that we're talking about here? There's been some exciting uh, developments at a federal level around really recognizing the need for us to have a, a really effective way for people to leave incarceration and transition successfully into community with the right kind of supports. And so building on some of what we've seen from other states and, and where we uh, sense some, some federal appetite for us to do more in this space really uh, looking for opportunities to leverage our Medicaid authority in ways that help support uh, individuals leaving incarceration to have access to the care that they need during their incarceration and afterward. And, uh, and, and that also includes, uh, to the point we were just talking about, the housing instability. Uh, very excited that our proposals include a, uh, a, a way for people when they're returning to community to get access to stable housing as part of what happens during discharge. That's something that, that we know when it's available works and has a tremendous impact on long-term success in reentry um, and preventing recidivism. And we're hoping to build on that with the proposals that are in front of the legislature right now. And you've been around state government for a while. You know how it all works and, and the politics behind some of this. With this large budget surplus that the state of Minnesota has, are you encouraged that some of these proposals will become law? I, I feel tremendously hopeful. I, I'm an optimist by nature in the face of these challenges, but I feel tremendously hopeful about the way in which everybody that I talk to understands that we are at a moment, not just of opportunity, we're at a moment of crisis that we really need to think about how do we uh, use the opportunity that we have right now with our budget surplus to invest in responses that are really going to help transform how we address substance use disorder, how we address housing instability, how we address all the other factors that are needed to make Minnesota the, the uh, best state in the country to raise a kid. Eric Grumdahl, appreciate your time. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Kathy. Appreciate the chance.
Eric Grumdahl is Assistant Commissioner of the Behavioral Health, Housing and Deaf and Hard of Hearing Services Administration at the State Department of Human Services. So at the beginning of the conversation, I mentioned that data from 2021 shows that Native people in Minnesota were nine times as likely to die from a drug overdose than white Minnesotans. Now, this is not news to Native leaders, and many are mobilized around solutions both in the state legislature and in their own communities. Sharon Day is an elder and leader in the Minneapolis urban Native community. She's a member of the Boys Fort Band of Ojibwe and the executive director of Indigenous Peoples Task Force that offers harm reduction in South Minneapolis. Sharon, welcome. Boujou. Yeah, Boujou. How would you like to introduce yourself, however you'd like? Well, I think you did a good job already. (laughs) Okay, good. Thank you. It's good to talk with you again. Well, what did you make of uh, the conversation I had with um, Assistant Commissioner Grumdahl? Um, He specifically was talking about, uh, we mentioned, we touched on the Native community. Uh, You've been pushing lawmakers and the governor to focus on uh, prevention. Do you think the state's listening to you? Well, um, you know, when I talk with the the governor and the lieutenant governor, you know, they seem to be in support of it. Uh, However, you know, we have a bill that Senator Mary Kunish has authored in the Senate. I think it's Senate File 2273, uh, and that hasn't had a hearing yet. And that really deals with prevention um, for that population, 18 to 24. And, uh, you know, as I said to the governor, it's, it, you know, prevention with humans is like um, taking care of the water. It's... Um, it's much easier to keep the water pure and clean than to try to clean it up once it's polluted and, uh, you know, uh, same thing with humans. It's easier and far more cost-effective to offer prevention services than it is to do treatment um, and, uh, you know, once somebody's addicted. Um, I've heard some say in the community that culture is prevention. So tell us what's happening to get young Native folks and adults involved in cultural activities. Yeah. Well, at at IPTF, we've been doing um, uh, peer education programming since uh, 1990. And we know from our own work with young people that we provide them with with culturally based um, after-school activities. Um, We have a theater program that deals with, you know, all of the social issues dealing in our community. And I, and I really believe like with this opioid epidemic, uh, young people need to come forward um, and uh, speak to their peers. We have a peer to peer um, navigation recovery um, program for youth. Uh, and they come in and they go through sort of a boot camp on, uh, peer-to-peer navigation recovery uh, and also work readiness skills and then we send them out into the community organizations um, for a two-month internship and some of those internships have become ongoing jobs for our, our young people so they're in that sort of age that's sort of floundering they're not in college they may not be working they may be in recovery themselves and um, so we're trying to give them that you know some of the cultural messages uh, that are so important to our well-being, and uh, give them a little jump start. 
you know, I know you're organizing this public event coming up here called Honor Our Loved Ones, and that's to draw attention to the opioid overdoses in the state. Can you tell us about that? And especially, sadly, your own personal experience? Yeah. Um, just over a year ago, um, my grandson uh, died of a fentanyl overdose, and um, uh, he had spent most of the last two years of his life um, in, in recovery, and uh, he had a, a slip on Thursday and uh, Sunday morning, and uh, he, he was he was a, a, a binge drinker, um, but somebody gave him something on, on Sunday morning, and um, and it had fentanyl in it, and he died, and so what we're trying to do here is um, is let policymakers know that um, you know these individuals are our our relatives, and um, they're not just a statistic. And also, we want to you know we're going to have uh, people can go to our our website uh, and they can click on the QR code and um, upload their picture of their of their friend, their family member, and say three things about them. Um, three three things like Joey loved fishing, he loved helping people, and uh, he loved being out on the water. The three things about them, and then um, there'll be a program that day. But the idea is to reduce the stigma, and there's a there's a lot of stigma around. Um, uh, drug use, um, and even in the you know, uh, um, I worked for years in the chemical dependency field, and even there, there's a hierarchy. You know, like it's okay to um, to be an alcoholic, it's not okay to be a drug addict, and yet they stem from the same. Um, it, it's an addiction either way, um, but there mm-hmm. is that hierarchy, and I've been surprised that. Um, you know, even some folks that we've been working with, you know, like say to us, I, I don't want my, to put um, the image of my, my son or my grandson, I don't want him to be known as a drug addict. And, you know, and the idea is, <clears throat> is to show that there's so much more than that, but there is so much stigma. And, um, and I think that also makes it hard for people to seek help. Because of the stigma and the shame. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, can people send the images by a specific date, Sharon? Yes, we're trying to uh, get them to us by, um, I believe it's April 11th. And um, the, the the website is not the IPTF website. We created a separate website. So it's uh, remember, R-E-M-M-E-M-B-E-R-O-L-O, rememberourlovedones.org. Okay. Sharon Day, I appreciate talking to you. I always, uh, I, I, you're just your knowledge is is second to none. Thank you so very much. Thanks for what you're doing too. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Sharon Day is an elder and leader in the Minneapolis Native uh, community in the Minneapolis urban Native community. She's also a member of the Boys Fort Band and executive director of the Indigenous Peoples Task Force in South Minneapolis.